Welcome to the Drum Shuffle, a podcast offering insights, perspectives, and conversations for drummers. I'm your host, Jamie Eads. Hey, how's it going out there, everybody? Welcome to the Drum Shuffle. Jamie Eads joining you as always. This is episode 81. Hope everybody's having a great week out there. Seems like I say that week in and week out, but I truly do hope you're having a great week out there uh, in Drumland. I have a great interview for you today. I'm going to be joined by my pal, my buddy, Kent Oberly, in just a moment after this message from our sponsor, Los Cabos Drumsticks. The best kept secret for drummers is finally out. Los Cabos Drumsticks may look like the sticks you grew up with, but these are not your father's drumsticks. Los Cabos Drumsticks is Canada's number one drumstick brand and they are coming to a retailer near you. With operations in over 28 countries worldwide, thousands of drummers have already discovered the Los Cabos difference. Using FSC certified wood from Canada and the US, Los Cabos make the finest quality drumsticks, percussion tools, and accessories on the market. The best news, Los Cabos Drumsticks offers you a ton of choice. They have 22 individual drumstick models and 14 percussion tools, many of which are available in three different wood types, maple, white hickory, and red hickory. Red hickory comes from the center or heart of the hickory tree and has been independently proven to be both stronger and more elastic than white hickory without adding a lot of weight. While most drumstick manufacturers have shunned red hickory, Los Cabos Drumsticks has embraced it, becoming the only established stick brand in the world to offer a full line of red hickory drumsticks. To learn more about Los Cabos Drumsticks, visit them online at LosCabosDrumsticks.com, follow them on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, and don't forget to ask for Los Cabos Drumsticks at your favorite retailer. Dare to be different. Join the Red Hickory Revolution with Los Cabos Drumsticks. All right, guys and girls, as I mentioned, we're about to be joined by my good friend, Kent Oberly. Uh, Kent is just one of the hardest working drummers in the music business. Uh, I've known Kent now for three or four years, um, and we actually cross paths. Uh, we're both Dream Symbols artists, and Kent spends a little bit of time helping the folks at Dream Symbols out. Uh, he is a clinician for Dream Symbols, but that's kind of how our paths crossed We've gotten to know each other pretty well over the last few years, and I I wanted to get Kent on here because he has just such a great message, and he truly is uh, just the guru of getting stuff done. Um, Kent, most famously, uh, is still playing with Christian Bush of Sugarland, but Kent has just so many great world experiences. I thought he would be the perfect guest to share some insight with all of us. Uh, so please help me welcome to the drum shuffle our good friend Kent Oberly. Kent, good afternoon, brother. How you doing? Doing great. How are you, Jamie? Man, I cannot complain at all. Hey, thanks for taking time to come on the drum shuffle. We appreciate it, brother. My pleasure, man. It's good to be here. 
Yeah, for sure, man. It's been a little while since uh, since we've been in the in the same city. Uh, I hope all has been going well for you since we were last together. It's been going great, man. Very busy. Been, uh, it's been a great year. But yeah, it's been great. Good deal, man. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Um, you know, as is our tradition here on the drum shuffle, we always start at the beginning. Now, you know, I, obviously I know some of your backstory, but why don't you tell all of our listeners where you grew up and, and how you got into drumming to begin with? Um, okay. I grew up in a small town in central Illinois called Fairbury, Illinois. It's a town of about 4,000 people. Um, I started playing piano. My parents were not very musical. Uh, they both enjoyed music, but neither one of them really played an instrument. My sister played piano, some guitar and auto harp. And my brother Dave was like an audiophile. So he was into like vinyl records and stereos and that type of thing. So there was always music going on in my house. And I guess when I was about, man, I was, as soon as I could stand up and reach the keys almost, my parents my mom especially pushed me to take piano lessons. And so I took piano lessons from about first grade, first grade until about sixth grade. And then I think it was fifth grade. Um, I was about 10 or 11 years old. My parents, my mom found a drum set. It was an old Apollo four piece, 13, 16, 20. It was a snare, which I still have Tom mount coming out of the bass drum, cymbal mount coming out of the bass drum. I don't even know this, what the cymbals were. Uh, but, you know, it basically found that drum set at a garage sale down the street for me for $15 or $35, something like that. Nice. And uh, that's where it just started, man. I, I think what drove them to get me a drum set was I still remember I was very young. I was maybe maybe eight or nine years old. And uh, I remember going to the Band Booster Spaghetti Supper which is held at the high school. At this time, it was Fairbury Cropsey High School. And I remember when John Singer got on a drum set. It was like a bright red sparkle, either a Slingerland or a Roger, something like that. And I just remember the, the concert being very boring. And then when he got on the drum set, he started playing. It just instantly became like a party. And I, I still remember being very young. I don't remember what song he was playing or anything, but I just remember the energy that I felt when he started playing and I saw the energy in the crowd and felt it. And I, you know, the best way I can describe it, I feel like that drumming energy just kind of went into me and that was it. I had to play drums. So it was, uh, started playing every day that they got me that kit. My cousin Tim came over and showed me how to sit and showed me how to put one hand on my, my right hand on my hi-hat, my left hand on my snare drum and showed me where my feet go, showed me the boom, crack beat. And then after that, it was watching lots of MTV as a kid, watching videos, <laughs> recording videos on VHS tapes and just, yeah. you know, falling all in, man. Yeah, so I, that's kind of where it started. I hear you. Well, now, so having a, an older brother who was an audiophile, I'm assuming you were raiding his vinyl collection to get some of those early influences, right? Oh, yeah. So, oh yeah. Like one of my favorites was my brother had a, a vinyl, um, at our house called, uh, super sounds of the seventies. Oh yeah. Okay. Superstars of the seventies. Yeah. Like one of and, the compilation deals or whatever. Yes. Okay. Yes. 
And I still remember being very young and finding that record and putting it on and uh, finding it had Dazed and Confused by Led Zeppelin on it. Oh, okay. And I would speed it up. I would put it on 45 RPM, 33 RPM. You know, I would speed it up, slow it down. And uh, I just remember that song just kind of freaking me out and blowing me away, but loving it. <laughs> yeah. And, uh, you know, Smoke on the Water was on there. So, you know, definitely brought me up the right way, you know, learning like classic rock and that type of stuff. So that's kind of the world I was brought up in. I got you. Well, so, I mean, you, you obviously mentioned Bonham and Pace in there. So I, who were some of the other early influences that, that kind of, uh, you know, shaped who you would become as a player? Um, you know, I would say there, there were so many drummers. I mean, every single drummer that I've ever listened to honestly inspires me, Sure. you know, but I would say the guys that had the most influence on me, it's really more about eras. It's like when I was a kid growing up, you know, the first people I heard were that late sixties, early seventies guys like Bonham Pace, uh, you know, Apathy and a piece, both Vinny and Carmine. Right. Um, you know, Bill Ward of Black Sabbath, I think, is an extremely underrated drummer. You know, all that Black Sabbath stuff was just blues, you know? Yeah. So um, that early, heavy, heavy blues um, from the late 60s and the early 70s, from the faces, all that stuff, you know, it was always being played by my older brother. So that was something that I always heard and I fell into and fell in love with. And then I guess as I got a little more into where I could like start choosing music of my own, you know, I started, you know, getting into guys like Stuart Copeland or the police, you know, a lot of the pop music, like the Michael Jackson stuff and, you know, whatever I was listening to at the time, it was just the rhythm in general just really grabbed me. Yeah, for sure. Um, and I guess like my main progression probably happened as a drummer, you know, when I went to co like in the late eighties and nineties, when I was leaving high school and college, and it was that hard rock LA scene, you know, the, and just the hard rock in the late eighties, you know, Tommy Lee's, um, Bobby Blotzer from rat, all that type of stuff. You know, it really just kind of graduated me from that classic rock into just eighties power rock. And then the nineties took over and it was guys like, you know, um, shoot, man, the guys from Jane's addiction, um, Stephen Perkins, um, you know, Jimmy Chamberlain, who is probably one of my top five drummers of all time from Smashing Pumpkins, you know, that whole nineties era of drumming, you know, um, Sean from Alice in Chains. I mean, there's so many guys, you yeah. know, it's just, it's, it's just so many guys. I think his name's Sean. Is it Sean from Alice in Chains? Yeah. Sean Kinney. Man. Yeah. Yeah. Sean Kinney. Yeah, that guy was, sure. I mean, some of the grooves that guy played, man, it's just, you know, no one can, you can hear another drummer play an Alice in Chains tune and it's like, nah. Yeah. I, it, oh yeah. Not quite right. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> well, you know, I mean, I had this conversation not too long ago with, with, um, John to Christopher and we were talking about Stan Lynch from, you know, Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. Oh, yeah, man. Same yeah. thing, you know, Stan Lynch, you know, dare I say he wasn't, you know, digging any new ditches, but it's, it, the way he played those grooves can't be replicated by another drummer, right? I mean, it's, um, you know, I think certain guys bring a certain thing to the songs that, you know, maybe it's not technically insane, but it's the feel that they have that makes it what it is. 
Absolutely. And you know, man, that's um, really, you know, playing in cover bands. I started playing in cover bands when I was in college and, a little, and towards the end of my high school. Um, but towards my high school, college career, and then on, you know, I've always been a big fan of playing in cover bands and playing covers because you learn pretty quick after a while that it's not even about the parts that you play. It's more about truly trying to emulate that drummer. Yes. It's like, what makes that drummer feel? Is it the way he moves his hand? Is it the way that he dances? Is it the way that he thinks, you know, cause I mean, like most drummers, you know, Neil Peart is definitely a huge influence on me. I mean, to say that rush was not a major part of my listening was, is crazy. They definitely were, but it's like for all my life, all I ever heard from everybody was like, Oh, you know, Neil Peart can't swing. It's like, man, if you go back and you listen to that rush stuff, there's definitely, he's got his own feel, you know? Yeah. Yeah. And I think by playing covers through high school, college, and even now, you know, it really kind of reconnects you with what feel is and trying to emulate that drummer, not just playing a part. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, and you bring up a really good point here because, you know, there's a lot of guys that, that took, a, 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 I guess, an opposite approach. And they're like, I'm only going to play in original bands because, you know, I, I want to be my own guy. I want to bring my own thing to it. But I think that there is a certain level of education that you get from playing in cover bands that you otherwise would not get if you're only doing, you know, the garage band thing and writing music. I, I think you you learn a lot more about yourself as a player playing in cover bands. Would you agree with that? I completely agree. Well, and, and you know, it's also, it's like, for example, like when I was in college, you know, um, or even in my 20s, uh, I was playing in a cover band that was playing four hours, five hours a night, three to four nights a week. And if somebody's going to sit here and tell me that they're going to sit down and practice on their drum for three to four hours a night, four to five days a week, you're going to be a really great drummer, but you're not going to be out gigging, you know? <laughs> and it's like, I just, to me, it's like you can practice and practice and practice all you want and do your own thing. But the thing that I found playing in covers was one, I was able to give myself a little bit of financial ability to work less of a demanding day, day job and allow myself time to actually go in and practice. But the other thing was I was on stage all the time. Yeah. So my comfort level of playing in front of people and playing on stage, playing in weird environments, playing in great environments, you know, it just made me, it kind of taught me how to become a truly professional drummer. You know, I learned a lot about what to do from great musicians who I played with. And I learned a lot about what not to do from other musicians that I played with on these gigs. Yeah. You know, and the guys who did it right were the guys who were making really good money yeah. and they were playing in cover bands. Cause I mean, shoot, man, back when I was in college and stuff, you know, probably in like 1990, 91, you know, the cover band scene, I mean, dude, bands were making 1500 to $3,000 a night just on a normal night yeah. as a cover band in bars. And then when the alternative scene really broke and it kind of broke from 
just a lot of us musicians who are in the bands like Nirvana, Soundgarden, um, you know, Mud Honey, the bands that were coming out on like the sub pop populations and stuff. When that stuff broke into the mainstream, you know, these bars all of a sudden realized they're like, hey, we don't have to pay a cover band $1,500 to play for four hours. <laughs> we can get three freaking original bands and pay them 50 bucks. And they'll or be not pay them at all. They'll be and glad these guys to have just it. want to play. Yeah. They'll be glad to have it. Yeah. You know? Well, which was another growth opportunity because I learned a lot about booking shows. And I learned about a lot about, you know, marketing and all that type of stuff of how to get your band in front of people. It was, it's all been ed- education. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, I mean, that's kind of the funny thing. Um, you know, uh, I'll tell a real quick, funny story. I had Rod Morgenstein on the show and he was talking about when the Dixie Dregs first started playing you know, they were playing, I think it was the Exit Inn in Nashville, and this would have been like 1973, I want to say. And he was like, you know, yeah. they, they were paying us a hundred bucks. And I was like, Rod, they're still paying bands a hundred bucks, <laughs> you know, <laughs> 45 years later. Yep. But, you know, to your point, playing in cover bands, you know, the intangibles that you get from being on stage all the time and then you mentioned it, the marketing, the the how to get the gigs, booking the gigs. That is something that is priceless in your development as a semi or fully professional musician. Yeah. Well, you know, I still remember being in college and this is when, you know, after the, the cover band scene really died. It, it East, like I went to Eastern Illinois University. And there was a time when the cover band scene died, like 1991, 92. The cover band scene just died because everybody was in original bands again. And I'd always played in original bands, and the cover bands basically helped me pay for my original band stuff. Yeah. You know? Um, and I looked at the cover bands as practice. That was my rehearsals for playing in an original band. Yeah. And I still remember being in an original band called Cherry Balance from. Charleston, Illinois. It's not the, the Cherry Valance from Chicago. It's a band called Cherry Valance from Charleston, Illinois. And I befriended a guy named Jeff Stepp, who was uh, running the dungeon in Charleston, Illinois, which was literally, man, it was this back storage area of Friends and Company, this bar um, in downtown Charleston. And I saw bands like Hum, The Poster Children, Jesus Lizard, Wax, Baruch Assault, uh, shellac with Steve Albini. Um, I saw so many bands coming through on tour and that's when I started learning about the indie tour world. Yeah. And I'll never forget Jeff at the time was booking the, the dungeon. He was also managing a great ska band from Chicago called the blue meanies, as well as a band from Springfield called Nihilate. And I still love, and those guys are just the best. Um, and I still remember going up to his office above the dungeon and it was just this hole in the wall office. And I walk in there and he's got this pile of eight by 10 uh, card stocks. And he's sitting there with a <laughs> cut, with a paper cutter, just chop, chop, chopping them into four cards. And then he's putting them in. He's, he's, he's made Xerox copies of every single one of them on both sides. And I'm like, what are you doing? He goes, I'm doing our mailing list. So if there's young kids listening, 
<laughs> Back when we had a mailing list when I was in college, you actually had to make your own postcards <laughs> yep. with your tour dates on it, and then you would put you would collect addresses from your fans and mail them. Yeah, and I still remember like helping him like take stuff to the post office. I basically just did it. You know, I just kind of just wanted to be around him when he was working because it was so interesting to me to learn all this stuff. And then I became part of the Dungeon Street team for a short bit and. Then my band actually started playing and we started hopping on little regional tours with other bands from different states. And it was just such a magical time. Yeah. You know, well, I mean, mean, when you go see a band now, you know, if, if they're like, you know, pull out your cell phone and you can get on our mailing list or some bands even bring around iPads so you can put in your email address and get on the mailing list. But to your point, back in the day, it was a legal pad and people wrote their, physical like snail mail address on there and then you had to print off postcards and mail them out you know once a month or whatever but um it it was just a different time it was a lot of work a lot more work than it is today you know i mean nowadays it's all about you know your social media presence your electronic press kit i can remember putting together like paper press kits you know with an eight by ten glossy a band bio you know uh, a CD and mailing that stuff out to places. That's how you book gigs back in the day. Yeah. I mean, it was just, yep. just a different time, but it, you know, it was a different time. I mean, this is pre- before cell phones, you know what I mean? So it's <laughs> yeah. like, you would come back, you would come back. Like we would go play like at, in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and there would be a band. I still remember like the first time I saw a band from Chicago called Busker Soundcheck. And I came back to, to Charleston and I was hanging out with all my buddies and they were like, what'd you do this weekend, man? I'm like, dude, we played in, uh, um, at the, uh, I was, I think it was called the fourth quarter in, in Terre Haute, Indiana. And I said, man, there was this band that played with us called Busker Soundcheck and they were ridiculous. And you're sitting there trying to explain it to them. You're not like being able to show them like a video or anything, a bad sounding video or anything, (laughs) which man, if I can throw out a disclaimer, if somebody taps you, if you're in Atlanta or you're at a show and somebody taps you on their shoulder and asks you to put down your phone. So everybody behind (laughs) you can see the show and to try to get you watch the show it's probably me because <laughs> I do uh, not understand the need to record video, record something that you are seeing in an arena on your phone. I don't get it. Well, but anyway, uh, yeah, get, I regress. And, and while you're at it, get off my lawn, right? Kent, you're never going to watch it again. <laughs> right. Get off my lawn. Anyway, but it was just a magical time, you know, man, I, I feel so blessed. Cause I, you know, I think, listen, every, everything's valid, you know, the social media thing and all that stuff is valid. You know, I think it's, but I also believe that there are a lot of bands out there that have done it still to this day by touring their asses off. And you look at bands like, I mean, shoot, man, you look at bands like Torch out of Miami, who's one of my favorite bands and they finally got on Seth Meyers this year. Yeah. You know, and they've been touring forever, man. You look at, I mean, Macedon wasn't a band that started on social media, man. Macedon toured their asses off in a van forever. Yeah. You know? Yeah. There's so many bands. I mean, Blackberry Smokes, another example. You know, they did it by touring their asses off. Yeah. And getting on tour and working their butts off, you know, and growing their fan base from playing shows. 
And I think the main artists that you see nowadays, even, I think most of them, I mean, there's always going to be that flash in the pan that it's a social media thing. But man, I, those things aren't really real to me. The bands that I really enjoy, you know, are bands like Russian Circles and people like that who literally have been doing it for a long time and have worked themselves to be able to make a living doing it because they've busted their butt and toured their ass off, you know? Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and you know, your story is, is kind of similar. I mean, you, you, you got that great education at home in Illinois, but you know, let's, let's transition your story a little bit. Let's talk about when you decided to leave home and, and you ended up going South um, you know, geographically, not figuratively. Um, but l- let's talk a little bit about your decision to, to move. Well, um, I was married at the time. I'm not married anymore, but I was married at the time. And, uh, you know, it was, it was kind of a decision, honestly, man, for survival. Because at the time we were living in a town called Effingham, Illinois, and I still have friends back there and I still love that town. But I had gotten laid off from my part-time my basically full-time day gig, which is like 30 hours a week. And then my wife also got laid off. And at the time, this is 2001 when the economy was really starting to tank. And when the economy tanks, you know, the big cities are the last people to feel it. It's the small, small market areas like the Midwest, you know, where people are working at factories and people are working like, you know, 20 to $25,000 a year, quote unquote, white collar jobs, you know, working in call centers and doing stuff like that. That's the people who get hit. So I guess it was like 1999 or 2000, I guess it was 2000 and the economy was just tanking and I got laid off. My wife got laid off and I was playing gigs on the weekend. My band at the time was a band called Pop Rocks. It was a disco cover band didn't really have any original stuff happening because there just wasn't any time for it. I was too busy trying to find work and making that gig happen the best I could. But what I did start doing was teaching lessons. So I started a drum lesson program at Samuel Music in Effingham, Illinois, and grew it from literally not having a program to about 30 students a week. So that was able to financially support myself and my wife, you know, to where we weren't starving to death. You know, I wouldn't say that we were by no means were we were living good at all, but we were not starving to death and we were able to manage. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, it just got to this point where there was a time in this band I was playing with where there was some stuff going on in the band and there was some weird drama and all kinds of stuff and something, it just wasn't, you know, there was a moment where I wasn't really comfortable with things. And I told myself, I had to sit there and really take a hard look at my situation. And I said, okay, wait a minute. So if this band breaks up, I'm now 30 years old. If this band I'm in pop rocks breaks up and we decide not to gig anymore. My only option living where I lived was to start another cover band and go to the exact same bars that I have been playing in (laughs) for almost 10 years now and try to get them to say, yeah, you know what, man, we'll give your band a shot. And it's like, I just couldn't do it again. Yeah. I, 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 it's literally, I was like, I got to get out of here. There's no, I've hit the ceiling of what I can do around here. Right. So, you know, we sat down and we had a long talk and 
we said, you know, let's get out of town. So she had, um, my, my, my former wife had, had family in Atlanta. So we came down here in Georgia. So we came in down and visited and we all met in Atlanta and we went around and I just had heck with it, man. You know, I brought a decent looking outfit and I said, I'm going to go around and hit some music stores and just see what's up. So I kind of went into a bunch of music stores, not necessarily for an interview, but to interview, you right. know what I mean? Yeah, I kind of yeah. went in there to say, Hey, I'm interested if you guys need help just to see what would happen. And I got offered a couple of gigs um, at music stores. So then I went home and I was like, Hmm, that was interesting. And my, my wife at the time, we were still in Atlanta. My wife at the time, when we met back up, she had just taken a job in Effingham, Illinois at this place called Patterson Dental doing like customer service work, you know? Yeah. And she was cruising around with her sister and they were driving around this office park one day um, while we were in Atlanta. And she came, when we met back up, she said, you're not going to believe this. I said, what? She goes, the place I just started working has a branch in Atlanta. I went, no way. So she literally got on the phone and said, would you guys transfer me to the Atlanta branch? And they said, sure. Oh, and that's cool. Within, yeah. within two months, we had packed up all of our things and moved to Atlanta and uh, completely started over. I moved to Atlanta to take a $9 an hour music store job <laughs> with no gigs. I would yeah. live in Marietta. And I started working at a music store in Forest Park, which if anybody's ever been to the Atlanta area knows that is a really, really bad decision because <laughs> I'm driving 40 miles in traffic at 8 a.m. in the morning through the city to the south side by the airport to go to Forest Park. And then when that store would close, I'd be leaving there about six, driving back in through the city to get to the north side of the city and drive to Marietta <laughs> in traffic. Well, okay. So, rush hour. so for, for our geographically challenged folks or people that haven't <laughs> visited Atlanta, there's a basic rule of Atlanta traffic. Do not head south yes. before noon and do not head north after noon. Right. I yes, mean, it's correct. It, you, you just, you don't do it. It's like, it's, yeah. it's stupidity if you try that. And if you have that commute yeah, yeah. every day, you're suicidal by the end of week two. So, <laughs> yes. Yeah. So basically what that meant was for three and a half hours of my day, I was sitting <laughs> in traffic. Oh man. But God bless you. The beauty you. of it was though, I figured out what I could do. So what I said was, I just told my wife at the time, I said, Hey, listen, um, there's going to be a few nights of the week that I'm going to get home pretty late, but I'm going to be out looking for gigs. So what I would do was I would leave uh, Tina's music in Forest Park at six. I would bring a change of clothes. I would sit there and just play for a little bit or maybe teach a lesson after work. And then about six thirty, seven o'clock, I would take off from Tina's, start heading back towards the city. And on Monday nights, I would hit the blues jam at Northside Tavern. Yeah. And then, I would do that every other week. And on the alternative weeks on Monday nights, I would hit the blues jam at Darwin's on Tuesday nights. I would go to the blues jam, um, at Nick's back porch on Wednesday nights. I would find another jam, you know? Yeah. And so I would just find, and then on Thursdays I would go to like 10 high where they would have original bands or another place where I could go catch an original show. So I literally on my way home every night from work, I was going out grabbing a bite to eat and, trying to get myself inundated into the scene. 
right. here in Atlanta. And eventually from playing in a bunch of those jams, my phone rang and a guy asked me to play a show with him. And honestly, I had to turn him down because I couldn't get off my work. <laughs> so I, I had to turn him down, but he gave my number to a few other people. And I ended up, um, the other thing I started doing, I forgot to mention, like before I moved those months before I moved, I went on to creative loafings, the local entertainment magazine. I went onto their website and started responding to drummers wanted ads. And I started getting CDs in Illinois from people here in Atlanta. And I told them, I said, I'm coming to a town, you know, in August, whatever. This is like 2001, 2002. And I said, I'm coming to town. I'm moving to town. You know, I'm looking for a gig. So I started getting CDs and I joined this band called Big Jack Pneumatic. And, uh, you know, so when I got here, I had a band that I could start jamming with right away. So it was all about just putting myself out there, getting myself into scene, networking with people and gaining people's trust that I could actually play yeah. and they could trust me to show up and do the job. And eventually my phone started ringing and, uh, I'd have to say my big break in Atlanta, as far as like gigging for, for, you know, the month, the band, Big Jack Pneumatic, we never made any money. You know, it was an original band. So we're still in that original situation. Didn't really do a lot of touring. We were just a regional act. Just they did it for fun. But we, uh, the thing that happened was we were cutting an EP with a guy named Aaron Thompson at a studio and Aaron liked my drumming and we were sitting down talking. We were both about the same age and Aaron said, Hey man, do you know any songs? How many songs do you know? I'm like, what do you mean? He goes like cover songs. You know, any cover songs. I was like, man, yeah, I know. I know a few. all of them. <laughs> I know all of them. If you're talking about like a bar gig, I know all of them. And he's like, well, man, I need a drummer this Friday and Saturday night at the Buckhead Saloon, which oh, was, yeah, the that's, gig was. That's a cool place, yeah. actually. Yeah. The Buckhead Saloon at the time, the gig started at 1030 and ended at 4 a.m. So I started playing at the Buckhead Saloon with uh, Aaron Thompson, Hank Barbie, Ray, uh, Hal Mayhan, the Wolf, uh, Sean, uh, Sean, um, Sean, uh, Sean McIntyre, Annie Birdsall, all these great musicians from Atlanta. And we were just like this collection of musicians that would play there every Friday and Saturday night, you know? And when we would take a break, we would walk around the corner to the park bench with Francisco Vidal is playing and he's hiring out other good players and they're playing like five, six hours, but Franny never took a break. So we would walk over there and they would like, Hey man, you want to get in and play? We're like, shoot. Yeah. So we would hop on their kits and their drums and their guitars, and we would play their stuff while those guys took a break. And then we would come back and finish our sets out, you know? Yeah. So it was this huge family of musicians, and that's where it all kind of started for me because I started having a regular gig with different musicians. I started building that trust with people, started finding other musicians that I like to play with, and, you know, it all went on from there, man. It's been a real blessing. Atlanta has been great to me. Man. I love this city. I well, love you, it. Absolutely. And, you know, I kind of want to get into the whole ATL, you know, drum collective because you ended up actually owning a music store, which if I remember the story correctly, it kind of led to your, your really big break. And, you know, I don't want to give anything away, but tell us how you ended up in that gig with, you know, with your drum shop. 
Oh, with Christian Bush? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so, um, well, man, you know, I was I was working at a drum shop called Atlanta Pro Percussion, and I loved it, man. It was it was my life. It was I loved that job. Um, there were a lot of good things about it. There were a lot of things that I, you know, another thing was like, you know, don't I would I would probably do this business a little bit different. And I got an opportunity. A guy was offering me a lot of drums to sell on consignment, and I started a drum shop. But the drum shop, man. Long story short, it was amazing. I had a blast doing it. I learned a lot about business. And I also learned that probably don't want to go to a business with somebody that you consider your friend and get everything in writing before you start. Because, you know, when you have to like go into like get lawyers involved with somebody you considered was your friend who was trying to, who was screwing up your business and thing that you love, it sucked. Yeah. But I learned a lot from it. So basically what happened was there was a day I was at the shop and our, our landlords, um, uh, we subleased from a company called Avatar, who's a backline company, gear rental company here in Atlanta. And I had worked for Avatar. That's where I found the space for the drum shop. I was doing backline, like putting together drum sets and tech and drum sets and schlepping gear all over the place for them. And Kenny Creswell, who's been huge drummer here in Atlanta, man, played with Butch Walker. He's played with a ton of great bands always a really dear friend of mine and somebody that I'm very proud to call my friend and somebody I'm very proud to use as a reference on my resume. But he, uh, he came in with a shop one day. I was teaching a lesson. He goes, Hey man, you got a second? I'm like, yeah. He goes, would you be interested in a gig? And I was like, I'm always interested in a gig. What's up? He goes, well, it's country. And I was like, I don't care. I love, I'll do country, man. Is it pop country? He goes, yeah. I'm like, I'm down. And I asked him who it was. He goes, I'll come back. So he came back and he told me about the gig. It was with Christian Bush. And he gave the guys my number. And Brandon Bush called me up, offered me an audition. And I went in and auditioned along with a bunch of other drummers. And, uh, you know, three days later, I got the call. And I've been with Christian now. Man, I think it's been, that was 2012. So we're coming up to 10 years I've been with him, which is crazy to think about. Yeah. But it's been, it's been an awesome ride, man. He's a, Real gentleman, uh, his brother Brandon, the music director, is just an awesome dude, and you know those guys are definitely family. It's it's been a real pleasure. Well, and right place at the right time, man. Right place at the right time. Yeah, I was just you took the words out of my mouth, Kent. I mean, it's right place at the right time, but being prepared, going into your audition, knowing what's going on, right, and 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 leaving your mark, and you get the call, and you know, that has led, you know, you've toured how many continents now w- with Christian? I mean, you, um, you guys have been all over the world. I mean, yeah, we've been all over the world. I mean, between them and the on fires from Australia, who I toured with for a while. I mean, I've, I, yeah, I've been all over the world, man. It's been great. Well, so, I mean, all of that goes back and I don't want to put too fine a point on it, but it goes back to the fact that, you know, your parents got you a drum set and you became a student of the instrument and you put in your time, you did your work. And, you know, we were talking about it being a different era. I see so many young players now, they get a drum set, they put in their time and they think, well, if I just do a really cool Instagram video, I'll make it. And, (laughs) you know, I, I don't mean to bust anybody's bubble. There's some incredible content out there. But is that how you make it? I don't. I don't know. I don't have the answer to that. But I think you know, man. I'll, I'll, 
I'll tell you what the answer is. I'll tell you how you quote unquote make it, you know? Um, there's two things. One, you got to figure out a way to not put too much pressure on your playing. Like for somebody to say, I am going to move to a city. I'm going to do this as a living. You're going to have to find something to do to make yourself some money while you do it. And the thing is, don't be ashamed of that. You know, you're trying to get going. You're trying to get yourself happening. But the other thing I would tell you is that every good gig I've ever gotten was from a referral. Yeah. And it not necessarily is a referral of, you know, that I'm the best drummer in Atlanta because I'm not. There are guys here that I could put up a kit next to them and they will literally take me and wipe the drum set with me. You know what I mean? Yeah. But the thing that I try to pride myself on is that I've worked very hard on being a very flexible very calm, cool person who can handle being around other people. Because the fact of the matter is, man, you know, I feel like, you know, I got the reason why Kenny asked me to, if I'd be interested in doing a Christian Bush gig and he, you know, told them, gave them my name probably had just as much to do with the fact that he knew that I would show up on time. He knew that I was not going to be the guy that caused troubles on the bus you know, he knew I was not going to be the guy that was going to complain. I'm not going to whine about stuff. I'm not going to complain about stuff. He knew I could show up there and not give them a reason to not have me play. Yeah. You know, because that's the thing, man. You can be the greatest drummer in the freaking world. You could have the best chops. You could have, you could say, you could, you could say that you know more about a drum than anybody in the world. And I, I'm sorry for my French, but if you come off like an asshole, people aren't going to hire you. You know, if you're, if you're the guy that gets wasted on the gigs, no one's going to hire you. If you're the guy that doesn't keep yourself in shape, it's going to be harder to get those gigs. You know, yeah. it's, 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 it's more than just a commitment to drumming. You know, it's a commitment to a lifestyle of being able to, handle all situations because i'm telling you man when i was on tour with the on fires and we first time we went to china in 2011 <laughs> i've heard this story i <laughs> dude i mean you're walk, I'm, I'm in a country with two australians who don't know the language we're literally carrying i have one suitcase with my clothes and we're there for a month where i have one suitcase with my clothes one suitcase full of gear a backpack and a symbol case. And we're doing an, a 30 day tour of mainland China <laughs> in pollution, in crazy traffic. We don't understand any language. We don't know the food. We, uh, you know, we're, we're being, our physicality is being pushed to the limits because we're having to tote this stuff up and down stairs. Um, we're sleeping in buses. We're sleep in, in, in just regular buses. We're sleeping on bunk trains in China um, where people are smoking on the train. You're taking shits and pisses in freaking squat toilets, which is just a hole in the ground while you're on a train <laughs> and the train is moving. I mean, it was challenging, but 
it was also the greatest time of my life. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah, because, for sure. Well, and, and you know, and I mean, it, he, he, not to steal your punchline, but, you know, your backline gear that you're getting every night is, you know, in some cases, total garbage, you know? Oh, I, my God, dude. Do you dude. do you cry about it or do you find a way no. to get the gig done, right? I mean, You find a way to get the gig done. Because what are you going to do? You're in China. What are you going to do? You're going to say, I'm not playing on this. Okay. <laughs> That's all there is. <laughs> That's all there is. You can play on it or you can not play on it. So I was very lucky at the time, man. My drum company at the time had a snare drum over there with my tour manager, had a bass drum pedal, and I brought some sticks. Other, and I had my own cymbals that I flew over. But other than that, man, I, I still remember showing up to a club called the Freedom House in Changsha, which is one of my favorite places we played. We got to play there in 2011 and 2012. And uh, I, made, I made really good friends there who I still keep in touch with. And the drum set there in 2011, when I showed up, had the toms, were, the kit was so destroyed. It was like a pearl, it was a combination between a pearl export and a pearl, uh, what's below the export? Vision. Something, no, was, the Vision had like a wood grain. Oh, okay. I'm talking like, the plywood drums. Yeah. Yeah. Like it was a, had a red pearl export Tom, a red pearl export bass drum and a black pearl something floor Tom. And this kit was so destroyed and rusted out that the lugs didn't even, there were no tension rods on the kit. What they did was <laughs> they took the rims and they turned the hoops slightly so that instead of the, the eyelets and the hoop would like line up with the rot with the lugs, they lined up between the lugs. And then they took coat hangers and ran coat hangers from the top hoop eyelet down through the bottom hoop eyelet, <laughs> bent them around the front and twist tied them. So when I showed up to set up the drums, the sound man literally handed me a, a hammer with nails and a pair of pliers. The hammer with nails was to get the cut kit set up where I wanted it and then put nails into the wood floor around the drum set so it wouldn't slide because there is no carpet. Carpet <laughs> doesn't really exist there. So there was no carpet, no rugs for the kit. It's on hardwood. So I had to nail it down to the floor, and then I had to tune it with the pliers. And the thing was, if you twisted it too hard and you broke that coat hanger, yeah. SOL, man. Lights that out. That rug is not going to chew. You just, yeah. And you know what? We had a black, the show was off the hook, man. It was so much energy. Because at that time, we're playing in a room about 150 Chinese kids in middle of freaking mainland China, where the festivals we played that year, it had been the sixth year in the history of China where they had music festivals. So it was like, pure rock and roll angst energy. These kids are tasting freedom for the first time and they were going ballistic, man. It was unbelievable. The energy that the crowd put off to us, it, I, I could have lit that drum set on fire and it would have been fine. It was <laughs> unbelievable. But the funny thing was, is we went back in 2012 and the same kit was there. And I had to play the kit, same kit twice. <laughs> so it was just, you know, but that's the stuff you deal with. Yeah. That's the stuff you deal with, you know? 
I, I tell my students all the time, I'm like, listen, man, if you want to become a touring drummer, first rule is don't fall in love with your gear to the point where you don't think you can play without it because yeah. you're not going to get to play with it. If you're doing flight dates and you're showing up and doing TV shows and you're flying around the country doing like one-off shows in California, you're not playing your drum set. Yeah. You're showing up to whatever they can rent yeah. and make it work. Make yeah. it work. You know, that's part of the attitude. It is. You know what? I'm here. Let's make it happen. Well, and you know, I mean, here's the other thing that, that I will say about you, Kent, is, you know, I, I've got lots of friends that are in the industry and, and I know tons and tons of drummers. Your work ethic is is something to be envied. It really is. Um, you know, you and I went up to, um, you know, our connection is Dream Symbols and you do a lot of work yeah. for Dream and that's how we met yeah, and got hooked symbols. up. Oh yeah, the planet without a doubt. But you and I went up to a place in Ohio uh, for one of your clinics, and I, I just kind of tagged along to help out. But you went and Howard did music, right? Yeah, Howard Music. Was that's it right. Howard music? Yes, yeah. it was uh, in Dayton, I think it is. Um, but you know, you went up and set up your own gear. You you set up the PA. You did everything yourself. It wasn't like somebody was there catering to you. You called them up and said, Hey, we want to do, you know, a dream day at, at your music store. You put it all together. You went up there, you did it. Um, and it went off without a hitch. Most guys would not do that. I, I, I oh, yeah. dare I say, well, I don't, you know, man, it's just, it's, it's how bad do you want it? You know, like I, I still remember, when I was working at my drum shop, you know, cause we would have clinics, you know, like I would have Jeff Seif come in and do a clinic and teach. I would have different people come in and do a clinic and teach. Uh, my friend Daniel Glass, you know, he would come in, Jonathan Mover came and did a clinic. And so I'd always reach out to the buddies of mine to say, Hey man, I got a spot where if you want to do a clinic, we can do a clinic. And, uh, you know, because I knew they had their stuff again, but what was amazing to me was the guys who would come up who, you know, their shop, the guys at the shop, and a, a guy would come up and say, yo, man, when are we going to do a clinic? I'm like, I don't know, man. When are we going to do a clinic? He goes, well, man, you tell me, man. I want to do a clinic here. I'm like, all right. When do you want to do a clinic? I mean, yo, man, I don't know, man. When do you want to do one? I'm like, dude, yo, I, I you tell me. <laughs> because the thing was, like, I... I don't think I got paid for a clinic and probably until like, I didn't make any money on clinics until probably 2009, 2010. And that was because I had my own DVD to sell at my clinic because like the way I started doing clinics was I said, I want to be a clinician. So um, when I was teaching at Samuel Music, I said, you know what? when was the last time you guys had a drum clinic here? And they said, man, we haven't had a drum clinic here, I don't think, ever. I'm like, let's do one. They're like, that sounds great. So I put together my own flyer. I booked the date with the store. I did everything myself. I didn't ask the store for any money. I didn't ask the store for any promotion. I did it all myself. I reached out to um, I, any companies that I liked. The gear that I was playing that I enjoyed, I just reached out and said, hey, man, I'm doing a drum clinic. Can you send some stickers? And... Guys would send stickers. Some people said no. And but the first clinic I did probably had like 50 to 75 people at it. And I was like, this is pretty cool. And I videotaped it. 
And I sent that video to those companies. And I said, listen, man, I like doing this stuff. Then I just started booking more clinics and booking more clinics for no mere reason other than I just like to do them. Yeah. That was the only reason I did it. I just felt this need to share with people, you know? And I think a lot of people look at it like, you know, I've been playing for so long, I deserve to be doing clinics. I'm like, well, then go do some clinics. Yeah. You know, but that's also, that comes from my background of the 90s, man, where it was like I was, we were booking our own shows. We were booking, you know, our, our band didn't have, we never had a manager. I never had a manager in a band. You know, we were the managers. You know, we did our own stuff. We did everything DIY. Yeah. So coming from that DIY background, you know, it just taught me that hustle, you know? And it, it is a hustle, man. It's a hustle. It's like if you want to be a professional musician, it's a lot of work. It's yeah, a it's, lot of work. It's it, a lot of work with not a lot of payoff. But when you finally get to that point where it's like you wake up every day and you can say, wow, all I'm doing is something involved with drumming. You realize that it, it might be when you turn like 45, like me, I'm 47 <laughs> now. I didn't start really making a great living at music. I was in my forties, you yeah. know, but it might take you that long, but man, you, the secret is being able to wake up every day and being able to say yes, or being able to do what you want. That's the secret. And if that means not having cable TV, if that means not having a car payment, if that means rooming with four other guys who have the same dreams as you, if that means, you know, sacrifice, you got to sacrifice. You got to decide, you got to decide at some point in your life, do I want to do amazing things or do I want to own amazing things? Uh, you know, yeah. if you want to own them, if you want to own amazing things, man, get your degree. I have a degree in business because I wanted to learn contracts because I was booking my own bands and stuff like that. I said, well, I'm going to get a business degree. That way I can understand business language, but get your degree and go do something full time so that you have benefits that you have all that stuff. And then you can own all kinds of things. You can own the hot car, you can own the big house, you can own all that stuff. And if that makes you happy, more power to you. I've never been a person that really needed to have big things. I just wanted to do big things. And, uh, you know, I'm just thankful that I've been able to do that. So. Well, and, that, and that's a great attitude. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you know, I, I, I've played, you know, semi-professionally for 20 plus years, but I've always had a day job. And it's one of those jobs where, you know, it has benefits and and all those things. And I'm OK with that. You know, I don't. Hell yeah. You know, I don't. I, I can still play as much as I want to. I can stay as busy as I want to stay. But for me, it's just not in the cards to, you know, be a touring musician. It's just not in the cards right. for me. And that's okay. Sure. I accepted that okay. when I was 23, 24 years old. You know, it's, it, it, you're either going to make those sacrifices or you're not. Um, there, yeah. So I, I want to make clear that we're not saying, you know, sell all your stuff and live in your car to be a professional musician. <laughs> you know, that's, <laughs> do not do it. Don't do it. Yeah. But, well, but, you know, man, and here's the thing. Here's the thing, Jamie. Whether you are playing in the weekend, where you're a weekend warrior and you got the band that gets, you got the cover band that just plays weddings, or you're the weekend, or you're the type of guy who is playing just in bars on the weekend. Listen, I've done all that stuff. 
You know, that's where I started, you know, and I still do that stuff. I get calls for cover gigs all the time. And if it's somebody I like to play with, I always do them, right. you know, but it's my thing is what I'm trying to say is that it doesn't matter if you have the day job and you're working towards a different thing. Cause man, if you have a wife and kids, being a professional musician is really hard, dude. It's almost impossible. It sucks. Because you have, you got other things you got to focus on and that's great. You are still a drummer. That's right. You know, it's like, I have friends of mine that work full time and they come up to me and like, man, it must be nice to play your drums every day. And I'm like, don't you, I thought you had a basement with your drums in them. He goes, yeah. And I'm like, so why aren't you playing your drums every day? <laughs> What's well, you stopping know what I mean. you? I'm like, yeah. no, I don't know what you mean. It's like, I, I mean, it's, we're all blessed with this, this gift of being a musician. Because the one thing that I've heard more from a lot of people, and it always inspires me, and it, you know, even if I'm down, if I'm like depressed about something, you know, I mean, I've been through a lot of trials in my life. Um, divorce, I've been through all kinds of stuff. And there's been times where I'm like, God, what am I doing? You know, what am I doing? And then I would have people come up to me and say, you know what, man? I wish to God at some point in time in my life, oh yeah, I would have learned to play an instrument. Yeah. You are so lucky to be able to express yourself on an instrument. Yeah. And that's when I go, well, man, here's my card. I teach drum lessons. You want to get a drum set? I'm happy to teach drum lessons. (laughs) It's true. Yeah, it is. It's true, man. It doesn't matter if you're a professional. It doesn't matter if you're the guy who plays in your basement. It doesn't matter. Man, if you have drums, play them. You know, The, the spirit of drumming doesn't come from guys who are playing on stages in front of thousands and thousands of people. The spirit of drumming comes from the dude in Africa playing with his tribe to scare off freaking, you know, evil spirits. I, it's from the, the Native agree. Americans who are creating this transient beat to bring spirituality into an event. You yeah. know, that's yeah. where it comes from. Those dudes aren't getting paid. They're getting paid in way other ways. It's yeah. that connection to um, life and that connection to rhythm that us as drummers have been given Man, we've been given this opportunity to connect to that. And there's nothing better, man, than sitting in your basement and putting on your favorite freaking song and being able to sit down and shut off the entire freaking world around you, shut off all the stress that's going on, and just go into your basement, put on some headphones, and rock the fuck out. <laughs> that's right, man. And so so few people get to do that, man. Most people go home and they're stressed out from their day job and they go to sit out, they go home, what do they do? They sit in front of the TV and they watch news and they get stressed out about the news. It's like, man, go play your drums. Yeah. Go man, play your drummer. Man, I couldn't say it any better than that, Kent. That's, I mean, that's just great advice. And, uh, you know, I, I, again, man, I think your work ethic is just amazing and you've done so many cool things. I just appreciate you taking the time to come on. Now, before we wrap up, I, I do want to at least talk for a second about Dream Symbols because you're doing some work Indeed. for them. 
Um, you know, you're, you're helping sales rep, you know, here in the States, they're a great Canadian company. Uh, I've been a dream artist. I want to say I'm coming up on four years, something like that. Um, and once I discovered that, that brand of symbol, there was nothing else that existed to me. You know, I mean, I just fell in love head over heels and I want to talk a little bit about them, whatever you want to share, but I know we've got some exciting stuff coming, whatever you can can share, please do. There's some exciting stuff coming. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Fair we enough. Have, we have, we have signed some amazing new artists that I'm not at the liberty to talk about yet, but one of them, especially uh, all of them are amazing, <laughs> but there's a few, especially man, that I'm just like, Oh my God, dude, it's so exciting. But man, what I can tell drummers who are listening to this, is the the reason why I went to Dream, I was endorsed by another major, major symbol company, one of the top four. And I still remember doing a clinic in Memphis, and I met Andy from Dream Symbols, and I met Scott Pellegrin for the first time. Scott and I instantly hit it off. We were like, oh, my God, dude, are you my brother? I mean, I, I love you. I love you. And uh, it was the first store I'd been in where – I think it was Academy of Percussive Arts in Memphis, and they had a wall of dream symbols. And it was the first time where I really got to hit, like, check them out. And I'm not, like, a gear snob, you know? It's like, because even now, it's like, I have to show up and play gigs, and I'll sometimes have to play on other symbols, and I'm like, ugh. Yeah. But it's just part of the gig sometimes. You know, sometimes you just can't fly with them. You're just not, it's just not in the cards. So, but... When I went in there and I started playing on these cymbals and I said, you know, these cymbals sound unbelievable. And I loved the cymbals that I'm playing, that I played before. If you want to know what I played before, just start Googling my name and just dig and you'll see the other cymbals that I played. I'm not going to say their name, but let's just say as an artist, for me to buy a 22 inch crash cymbal, it was about 350 bucks. <laughs> That's a good deal. <laughs> and when I went into a store and I played a 22 inch contact, I'll never forget. It was the 22 inch contact heavy lot. And I started playing on this thing. And I said, man, can I put this on a kit in another room? They said, yeah. And I took it into another room and put it on one of the lesson kits and started playing on it. And I was like, man, I kind of, I actually like this symbol more than the one I'm playing, man. This thing's got to be expensive. And I looked down and it was like 200 bucks. And I was like, wait a minute, is this used? And they're like, no, man, that's new. And then I looked at like an 18 inch crash and it was $149. And then I saw a 22 inch crash ride. I was like, 22 inch crash. And it was 250 bucks, 220 bucks. Yeah. And I was like, this isn't, this is nuts. I couldn't believe it. And then they said, yeah, they got a two-year warranty. And I'm like, what? A two-year <laughs> warranty? And, and when I started my shop, that's when I said, man, we got to sell Dream Symbols. Because the company I was playing at the time weren't going to let me carry their symbols unless I bought like 30 of their high-end symbols and carried their percussion line, which would have ran me about twenty to $30,000. Yeah. And I was like, hell no. Dream was like, dude, how many symbols do you want? We'll place you an order. We'll, we'll charge your credit card for whatever you order. You can order five symbols. We don't care. We want to be in there. And, man, I tell you what, 
compared to every other major brand there was. The Z, the S's, the M's, and the P's. Uh, we sold probably 10 to 20 dream symbols for every one of those other brands. Because drummers would come in and they would play those symbols and they were just like, these symbols sound awesome. And then they would see the price range and they're like, why are these so cheap? And then you just got to think about it. The reason why they're so inexpensive is all B20 alloy. It's all handmade, two-year warranties. The sounds are from the different lines all blend really well together. It's just because as a company, they got the drummers back first. That's they right. They don't believe as a company that you should have to choose between making a car payment or paying your rent and buying that crash symbol that you want. Amen. That's just not fair. I mean, I've seen symbol companies where I was working in retail that had two price increases in one year. I think Dream had like one price increase in the last 10 years. Brother, I saw, like I saw a ride symbol in a retail shop here in my area not too long ago. The list price was four digits for a ride symbol. Yeah. I was like, yeah. man, you know, even if you're going to sell the darn thing for, you know, 35% off that, you're, you're still talking about a $650 ride symbol. You know, unless it makes me sound exactly like Steve Gadd and get all of his gigs, I'm I don't want any part of that. You know, so well, you know, man, if you're a gigging drummer, if you're a gigging drummer and you're listening to this, whether you're playing cover gigs or you're playing just church gigs, anything, man, or just a drummer in your house and you want to own a lot of symbols, check out Dream Symbols. Yeah, because I, the fact is, when I had an endorsement with another company. The only symbols I can afford to have are the symbols that I have. With Dream, I can afford to buy symbols. Like, I'm like, man, I'd really like a new Pang. Oh, wow. It's 130 bucks. Okay, cool. I'm going to go buy a Pang symbol. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I mean, mean, yeah, the, the price point is right. No doubt about it. But, you know, I, I think a lot of people get hung up on that and they're like, well, if it's so so inexpensive it must not be good and that's not true at right. all i would put not true at all any of the dream stuff against any of the big boys that's why i play it and you know i did, me, I, did me, I did i yeah. did a gig not too long ago and somebody that's not a musician whatsoever walked up to me and he said what are those symbols man they they sound so good they're not harsh like most drummers that come here and play their symbols always sound harsh. And we had a conversation. He was like, I've never heard of them. He was like, I haven't heard of any symbols really, you know, but even somebody that doesn't know anything can recognize the difference. I, that's my yeah. point here. I mean, it's just unbelievable. Well, I mean, the, the moment where I was like that as, as being a dream artist, man, the, the moment I'll never forget is when I was doing a, a session at fame studios in muscle shoals, which is, that's where American rock and roll came from. You know, that's where it was born. You know, the Swampers, the Fame Studios, uh, Aretha Franklin, all that stuff. That was Fame Studios and Muscle Shoals. And I went in there, I was doing a session with them. And John, the engineer, came on the speaker and he's like, oh, we're doing a listen back. And he turned to me and he goes, dude, your cymbals sound unbelievable. And he goes, what are those? And I was like, they're dream cymbals. He goes, damn. He goes, I mean, those are some of the best recording symbols I've ever heard. And I was like, wow, 
really? I said, that's a hell of a quote. He goes, yeah, man. And I said, well, don't you guys have symbols? And they didn't really have any stock studio symbols. Fame since that day yeah. has at least five or six dream symbols in their main room and in their B room. Yeah, like, it's, they're the they official symbol of fame studios now. Our symbol, dream symbols, is the official symbol of fame studios. Yeah. That, so if that, if there's any, if anybody needs any kind of like stamp of approval, I, I don't know what else you need other than that. But you're right, man. I mean, listen, there are companies that have been around. I mean, you look at companies like Zildjian. Zildjian is one of America's oldest companies. They're one of the oldest companies in the world. So there's a reason why people play those symbols. You know, it's a name they can recognize and it's a name they respect. All I'm saying is that the next time you go shopping for a symbol, give Dream a chance. And I'm telling you, you're going to go home very happy. You're going to be happy and your music store that you bought it from is going to be happy because the music store makes good money on the symbol too. Yeah. You know, it's, it's truly a win-win situation for everybody. The, the music store does great and the end user, the drummer does great. And, uh, the recycling program's really cool. It's just, there's so many cool things about that company, man. It's truly a blessing to work for. Well, you know, I, and I don't know if my endorsement is any kind of ringing endorsement or not, but the very first guest ever on the drum shuffle was our good friend, Brian LaRue from Dream Symbols. So that, that should tell everybody man. something. My man was the first guest ever on this show. So <laughs> He's the bro. He is, he man. Is He's just good people. Kent, brother, yeah, man. thank you so much for taking time to come on and do it. Um, it real quick, before we let you go, give everybody uh, the social media links, the website, all that stuff. I know you give lessons in the Atlanta area. Uh, just tell people where they can hook up with you. Well, uh, I tell you what, my website is Kent Aberle. It's K-E-N-T-A-B-E-R-L-E dot com. And uh, if you go on there and you shoot me, I have all kinds of lessons on there um, for like five bucks. Um, if you can pay five bucks for a lesson, great. If you can't afford five bucks, man, shoot me an email and I'll send you the lessons for free. Oh, uh, wow. That's awesome. My, my Instagram is Kent Oberly. Facebook is Kent Oberly. Yeah. Okay. All, All right. Well, we're going to send some so, folks your way. I appreciate that offer for our listeners, man. That's awesome. My pleasure, man. Dude, it goes without saying you're, you're welcome here anytime. Keep me posted on what's going on. Hopefully, we'll run into each other at PASIC or NAM or someplace here sometime soon. But the next time you get up this way on, on uh, you know, North 75, let me know and we'll do lunch. How about this? Why don't you, I've already been up that way. Why don't you come down to Atlanta and we'll close down to Claremont. <laughs> okay, sure. Let's do it, man. <laughs> All right, brother. Always All, a pleasure, brother. Always a pleasure talking to you, Kent. We'll talk to you real soon, man. And uh, all you drummers out there, listen, play every day. That's all you got to do. Play every day. Amen, brother. That's it. <laughs> I'll talk to you soon, dude. Thanks, brother. Take care. See ya. All right, guys and girls, that's going to wrap up episode 81 of the Drum Shuffle. A million and five thanks to my pal, Kent Oberly for taking time out of his busy schedule to come on and talk to all of us. Uh, again, you know, just a guy that knows how to get stuff done. 
Uh, really do appreciate him taking time to come on and share a lot of really good knowledge with all of us. Hey, thank you guys so much for tuning in. We really do appreciate it. I'm going to ask, as I always do, hit the subscribe button on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. We have some great interviews and episodes coming up that you're certainly not going to want to miss. Next week, I'm going to be joined by the great Joe McCarthy out of New York City, who has just a phenomenal new record that just came out. And we'll be talking all about that with Joe. As always, we love hearing from you. We answer every single email that we get. The Drum Shuffle Podcast at gmail.com is where you can reach us. Our web address is thedrumshuffle.com. And of course, you can find more information about me over at jamieeds.com. While you're there, look at all those social media links. Follow us on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all those great places. Uh, you might even be able to see uh, some photos of fish that I did not catch last week. Uh, so I'll just leave it at that. Thanks so much for tuning in. We can't do it without all of you. So until next time, may your head stay strong and your sticks never break. Cheers, everybody. <laughs>